You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Old Nick, they called him, and he earned himself a spot on the earliest versions of the Index Librorum Prohibitorum with his treatise, The Prince. History remembers him as a guide for those who would survive and defeat enemies in the cutthroat world of politics. But Christopher Chilenza, author of Machiavelli, A Portrait, from Harvard University Press, does not let us rest content with merely the stereotypes and the legends. Instead, in his brief and enjoyable book, Chilenza provides some historical context within which to think about Machiavelli's ideas, as well as a look into his biography and his activity as a writer of history and comedy and copious letters. Christian Humanist Profiles is delighted to welcome Chris Chilenza on the show to talk Machiavelli with us. Thank you for coming on the show, Chris. Oh, my pleasure. Very happy to be here. Well, early in your book, you set forth a central biographical datum about Niccolo Machiavelli. He was a Latin-reading literatus, and his exposure to ancient texts, especially Livy, makes all the difference for what comes after. What connections to the ancients and to medieval thought are going to be most important as we talk about Machiavelli? You know, it's a great question, and I have to say it's one of the things that I think makes the period in which he lived so unusual and interesting. For a lot of us, it's probably scarcely imaginable, not only that if you're an educated person, you would be basically bilingual, but that that second language would actually be a dead language, Latin. And so Machiavelli, like everybody else in his, his age uh, who's educated, um, in Florence, they received a very, uh, young people received a very basic education in Tuscan, especially enough to read and write and, and do a little bit of arithmetic since it was a merchant society. But if you went beyond that very basic vernacular, i.e. Italian Tuscan education, the rest of your education would have been all in Latin. And we know that he was, his father kept a, a kind of a diary and he mentions the person with whom he sent young Machiavelli to study. So this idea of being literatus, I focus on that in the book because um, on the one hand, it means literate as we think of the word, which is to say just able to read and write. Um, but on the other hand, literatus in, in his era also meant, meant able to uh, read and work in the Latin language. And that was seen as a separate language, a kind of language of culture and a language of study. Um, and again, it's a lost world in a lot of ways because, you know, we can scarcely imagine what that was like, but it's actually not all that old. Even someone like Nietzsche, for example, actually wrote his dissertation in Latin. Hmm. But, right. but, but Machiavelli really, you know, it, it forms part of his world. Um, and so you know, the connection to the ancients are super important for him. I mean, he sees ancient authors, he sees ancient Rome, especially as a kind of model of what society should be like. Um, and then I think there are other more hidden things that are, you know, you asked what connection to medieval thought, hidden things that I think you have to look a little harder for, but that are still there that mark Machiavelli, maybe not so much as medieval, but as part of this long pre-modern period. Um, so, so those are definitely things we can talk about as we go along. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I asked about medieval largely because I see in your examination of Machiavelli, especially some connections to, for instance, William of Ockham, who focus very strongly on the will as central to human existence. Yeah. I mean, is that something that you see as coming down to him from that sort of Paris dialogue? Or is that something that you see that he has picked up from the Romans? That's a great question. Um, you know, if you think of the sort of intense and detailed examinations of language that you'll see Occam engage in, for example, 
I do think that's one of the connections. I don't know that it's a direct connection for Machiavelli because I think that what's interesting about him is he's, on the one hand, someone who is a great and close reader of the texts he chooses to read. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he's definitely not a scholar in the sense that, you know, the purpose of reading a text for him is not just to read it and annotate it. The purpose is that something usable should come out of it. So um, I could be wrong about this. I don't know that he has Occam in his library. Let's put it that way. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And then the other follow-up question I had, I mean, you focus a great deal on the Latin education of, of you know, 15th century Florence. Uh, to what extent would the the holdings of, you know, a Greek library, like what Petrarch would have collected, would those have played any part at all in Machiavelli's education, or was it pretty well a Latin leg- education? For him, it was pretty much Latin. I mean, you okay. know, Petrarch, Petrarch, you know, has this famous letter in his correspondence where he's corresponding with, a, this is, you know, Petrarch dies in 1374, and he's corresponding to a Byzantine friend who had sent him Petrarch, some Greek manuscripts and Petrarch famously writes back and says, oh, your Homer is mute to me, meaning Petrarch never really learned to read Greek, but right after a number of people did, the generation after. So Florence really, from about 1397 to 1400, had hired a Greek teacher and diplomat named Manuel Chrysalora. So a number of of Machiavelli's predecessors, you know, who were around long before he was born, um, in the first two or three decades of the 15th century, translated a lot of ancient Greek work into Latin. So, for example, the great lives of Plutarch, you know, the lives, the parallel lives of Greeks and Romans, these were wildly popular. So things like that, a lot of the things that are from the Greek, let's say, historiographic tradition, they do reach Machiavelli, but they reach him in Latin translation. So, you know, he does know about uh, Polybius, for example. He knows about Herodian because... Uh, a philologist, the generation previous to him, had translated that from Greek into Latin. So by, by Machiavelli's day, it's interesting. I mean, you know, he really, it, you know, he would have available to him in some ways almost all of the range of classical texts that we have now, um, and he would have had them mostly in Latin translations. Okay. Well, I want to turn to Machiavelli's foil as you present his story, uh, and it's this fascinating figure. I've really only read cursorily about him. Uh, Girolamo Savonarola, I've probably mispronounced him, but his rise in the late 15th century not only provides fodder for Machiavelli's commentary, but it also stands as a model for what faulty power looks like. So for our listeners whose Florentine history is as rusty as mine, uh, remind us about Savonarola and how his career shapes Florentine politics and Machiavelli's thought. Well, he's an utterly fascinating figure. He is a Dominican preacher uh, from Ferrara, the city of Ferrara, who um, spends some time in Florence in the 1480s, goes away, comes back in the late 80s, early 1490s. And again, you know, one point that I bring up in the book is, you know, the the sort of the pre-modern world and what does it mean? And, you know, you have to imagine a world without TV, right, without movies, without the internet. And so if somebody comes into town and they're a very powerful speaker and they're willing to get up in front of a group of people and talk about you know, um, apocalyptic things, because this is one of Savonarola's um, uh, uh, themes, really, is, you know, is this the end of everything? You know, has Florence let itself go? You know, will there be vengeance coming from God and so on? Um, he does this. And he gains a real audience. Florence has two uh, Dominican churches. One is called San Marco, and the other one is called uh, Santa Maria Novella. Um, and he starts out preaching at San Marco, 
and if you've ever been to Florence or if your listeners have been to Florence, this is a very beautiful place you can visit. It still has the frescoes in the monastic cells by Fra Angelico, the great 15th century painter. Beautiful place to visit. It's the site, you could argue, also of the first public library. There's a library built there in which a lot of um, books were uh, available to people. So Savonarola sort of establishes himself there. His, his preaching gets so popular that he has to move his preaching from San Marco, which is actually a pretty sizable church, to the Cathedral of Florence, you know, known as the Duomo because of Brunelleschi's dome that he had built on top of it. So, you know, he really becomes a star pretty quickly in the early 1490s. And he does two things in his preaching. The first thing he does, uh, let's say on the religious angle, is he basically tells the Florentines, you know, um, you're concerned too much with luxuries. You're concerned too much with your your painting and your ancient literature, and and you know you're you're not concerned enough about living a, a more pure, a more Christian life. And the second thing that he does is he ties that message to a very effective political message for the Florentines, because as a corollary to that message, he says that the other thing, Florentines, that you've done as you've lapsed into luxury is you've forgotten about your own most powerful political traditions, which is to say republicanism. Not republicanism like we mean today, republicanism versus Democrat, but republicanism in the sense of participatory government. And he says, you know, he basically transmits the message without saying so in so many words that the Florentines have allowed themselves to slip. They've, they, they've, they've let themselves get too into luxury and they haven't taken control of their own political environment. So, so Bonarola, after the death in 1494 of a very ineffective Medici leader, who was the son of this, not the death, rather, excuse me, after the departure in 1494 mm -hmm. of, of uh, the son of a very effective Medici leader, Lorenzo de Medici, his, his son Piero is this very hapless figure, and he, he winds up effectively being run out of Florence in 1494. So Bonarola, by this point, has basically built a political party. And that party effectively takes power, and it not just takes power, it actually expands the franchise in some ways. It builds, a, it, it, there, it adds to the main Florentine governmental building, uh, the Palazzo della Signoria, it widens this room, it's called the Room of the 500, so that more people can fit in for public assemblies. Um, and so for a while, he's really riding high and he becomes in effect the main political figure of Florence on the one hand, but on the other tied to this very austere religious message. If you fast forward to 1498, Florence being a republic, um, and this is something Machiavelli will talk about endlessly in his work, always has different factions. So even if somebody is in a dominant position, it doesn't mean that there's not some other faction that feels disenfranchised and that wants to get in power and so on. So that, you know, to put it simply, the tables effectively turn on Savonarola by 1498. He winds up being accused of heresy. He and two of his Dominican confrères are um, uh, basically hung uh, and then publicly burned in Florence's main square right in front of this Palazzo della Signoria. So again, the pre-modern character of the world, you know, and after after the ashes are um, on the ground, the ashes are taken away because the authorities didn't want anybody to make a relic out of Savonarola and so on. So you really see that there's this incredibly dramatic world. And it's really only then, right after that event happens, that we really see Machiavelli step onto the public stage. Um, and so, so that's, that's really, I think, what he would have seen. He comments on Savonarola later when he gets to writing his prints and when he gets to writing his you know, other works. 
but he would have grown up and he really kind of reached political maturity right at that point. And it's right in that very year that he gets elected to his first set of governmental offices, which give him this you know, really active career as a diplomat for the next 14 or so years. Right. And that's the part that I found fascinating is that in my sort of Western Civ education, you know, Savonarola was the guy who didn't like ancient literature. So he was one of the bad guys. But, uh, you know, as far as, you know, he was someone who came, who rose to power over against the Medicis, and then, you know, in his wake comes Machiavelli's public career. Yeah. For, for some reason, I'd never situated him there, so, I mean, that's that was definitely a fascinating part of the book. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I mean, the interesting thing, too, is, you know, scholars have studied um, the survival of the Savonarola political party after Savonarola's death. So there were still people out there, in other words, that kind of liked the message. They liked this sort of broader, you know, there are different versions of what, you know, liberty and republicanism mean back then. And so Savonarola's version was always a little bit broader. And then there are other factions that wanted to narrow participation a little bit. So there's that whole element as well. You know, it's not like everything with Savonarola dies when he dies. Hmm. Yeah, so, you know, like I said, I mean, he was this sort of uh, street corner preacher the way I was taught, you know, the history of Florence. I never knew he was Ralph Nader as well. So, <laughs> yeah. well, in the in the 21st century, when people turn the people use the term mercenary, mm. uh, we usually mean something, someone who is either no longer or wasn't ever an officer in the U.S. military or a national military. It's a soldier of fortune someone who's not attached to a nation. Mm -hmm. But it seems like the term has a broader meaning for Machiavelli and his contemporaries. What does that term mercenary, or whatever the Italian term is, mean in the 16th century? Yeah. And why is the question of the mercenary soldiers so important for Machiavelli's work? Well, you know, Italy, you know, these days we think of Italy as one big country, right? We identify more or less the whole Italian peninsula of this country. In Machiavelli's day, it was very different. In Machiavelli's day, in some senses, let's say in the two or three centuries before Machiavelli, Italy's greatest strength lay in the fact that it had these very independent, very powerful, sometimes very wealthy city-states, often in competition one with the other. Right as Machiavelli is coming to maturity, I actually think he sees some of this almost subterraneously. He never quite gets it out consciously, but right as he's kind of coming to maturity, you have these much bigger sovereign states emerging. You know, you have powers like France, you have um, Spain, and eventually England. And all of a sudden, that idea of being these small but independent city-states can't really compete against these you know, more massive sovereign states. So for Italy, the tradition with these small city-states had been that they would basically hire armies for themselves. So if they needed an army, they would hire what was called a condottiere. That's sort of the word, one of the words for mercenary that Machiavelli uses. Um, So-called because the condottiere would receive a contract, which was called a condotta. And so the condottiere, you know, is, is, is effectively a military person for hire. And that person would himself then organize his own military and he would fight for you if you paid him. Now, you know, Machiavelli wasn't the first one to suggest that this is not beneficial. In fact, even in Savonarola's day, there were people who said, um, you know, that this isn't the most effective way to run things. You know, they're really only there to be paid. Um, if somebody comes and pays them more, they're going to fight for that other person. All that's true. Um, the problem, though, with it, the reason it, it right now, you know, it's hard to imagine. But for them in Italy, an, another issue was the rise of kind of professional soldiery. You know, there are new weapons um, that need that needed 
professionals to use. In other words, how do you have a military if you're not going to have a standing army? How do you equip, say, a militia? In other words, people who are just your citizens. How do you equip them? How do you train them? Right. So the solution most Italian city states arrived at was that they would hire these they would hire these professional soldiers when they needed them. And this too, and you know, in a world where you know war is more or less always on the horizon, uh, and it can be very close to home in a way that I think, especially for us as U.S. citizens, you know, even though there has been a lot of fighting uh, in which Americans have been involved, it's not kind of on our shores. It's not close to home. So, so I think in in this states, this issue of mercenaries is very important. So, for Machiavelli, he thinks, as I as I mentioned, as a few others had before him, that it's not good for your city state if if you just hire outside soldiers. You should instead develop a militia that's derived from your own citizenry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and he does that, you know, in, in, in 1509, he actually has his greatest political success when he, he drew up plans, he presented them to Florence's governing body. He finally, you know, by hook and by crook, persuading people, you know, retail politics got their consent to do it. And he put together a, a, an army of about 5,000 men. Uh, and that army had a key role in uh, blockading the city of Pisa, which is very important to Florence because it was on the sea. And so this would have been Florence's gateway to the sea in a way, and the Arno River connects them. And Machiavelli in 1509 has this success where Pisa then finally is forced to submit to Florence. They had been in rebellion against Florentine dominion. And that's really in some ways the greatest moment of his public life is when he organized this this Florentine army in the way he wanted to do it. He had originally hoped to get 10,000, but he wasn't able to get to that. He was able to get 5,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has this success, and people are just, you know, utterly delighted at that point. Right. And and that distinction is precisely what I had in mind, is that, you know, the rise of the professional national army was something that was still on the horizon. The larger nations were doing it, but it wasn't something where every nation had their own national army and then you also had mercenaries on the side but it was one or the other yeah i think that's right and and i think you know machiavelli also during his life is living through a an interesting passage which which you could broadly describe as cavalry to infantry in the sense that you know cavalry because they cost a lot of money horses cost money armor costs money the kind of training that goes with it you know tended to go with elites, with people of, say, knightly background, aristocratic background, precisely when you start to see the rise of these bigger sovereign states, you also see the rise of just more infantry um, and people being drawn from different sorts of, uh, you know, social backgrounds than would have been the case earlier. Okay. Well, one of the things that you return to time and time again is that for Machiavelli, the central aim of politics is to preserve liberty. And this is one of those words that is certainly contested in the 21st century. It seems also to have been contested there in the 16th. Talk to our listeners a little bit about the range of arguments that raged around that term and where Machiavelli fell in that scrum. You know, Florence, people who study Florence are in general pretty lucky because late medieval and Renaissance Florence has one of the best preserved archival records in all of Western Europe. And one thing we know is that, you know, a hundred years before Machiavelli is writing, um, we have preserved Florentine archival records. They're called the Consulte Pratiche, which actually preserved the, the literal discussions that were taken down by notaries of, you know, people talking about Florence's politics. 
And one word they come back to time and time again is libertas in Latin or libertà in Italian, liberty. And you're exactly right that everybody has slightly different shades on what it means. You know, on the one hand, I think the most basic meaning and what it really does mean for Machiavelli as well is it means freedom from control by others. So if you're an Italian city state like Florence, you don't want to have to offer formal submission to say, I don't know, a German emperor, or you don't want to have to, you know, submit to the Pope or to another authority. You want to, you want to be self-governing basically. So the, the first thing about liberty that Machiavelli believes is that, you know, it's better to have, um, you know, nobody in effect controlling you as a state. Now then it starts to get spun out a little bit more and different thinkers will have different theories. It can, it can also start to mean, you know, um, certain liberties that citizens should have, you know, let's say for example, you should have the freedom to have your own property. And, you know, no state should be able to come in and arbitrarily take the property away. And all of these things are, you know, little strands, little genealogical strands of theories that only later, I would argue, in the 18th century really become formalized into, you know, a theory of private property, you know, life, liberty and happiness, that kind of thing. But they're all kind of floating around there in Machiavelli's day. And I do think this liberty, you know, it means it doesn't really mean a universal theory of human rights because Machiavelli is perfectly comfortable, as were all of his predecessors in Florence with, you know, liberty for Florentines, but then we have to go take control of that city that's rebelling against us. You know what I mean? So it's not like everybody gets the same rights, but but it, it's, it's sort of these genealogical strands that go into these later arguments. Okay. Well, I want to turn our attention to The Prince, which is the Machiavelli book that I know best. Uh, and one of the things that you return to there is that a prince's thoughts should dwell on what is rather than what ought to be. Now, as you see things, to what extent is the shift in focus pretty standard for the 16th century, and to what extent does that move actually revolutionize political thought? You know, that, that's a great question. I mean, if you were to take texts that are traditionally taught in, let's say, political science departments, then it would be very revolutionary. But the more scholars have worked on the 15th century background, and the more they work specifically on history writing in the 15th century, the more what one has started to see is that there is this move, and you can see this as early, for example, as um, the uh, Renaissance humanist thinker and former chancellor of Florence named Leonardo Bruni, who died in 1444. He writes this massive history of Florence. When you read, let's say, Bruni's histories of Florence, there's no sense of a divine providentialism. He's basically just dealing with secular matters. And the more we read histories of the 15th century, the more we see that there's a sense in which people start to become more comfortable just kind of talking about history and talking about the actions of people. And they're looking back to ancient models. You know, they think in exemplary terms, meaning they look for examples. So they want to present, you know, an example of a good ruler. And the hope is that those who are assumed to be the ruling classes, let's say, of Florence will read these histories find these ancient examples and use them. But they're very comfortable doing it all within a kind of human realm. Mm -hmm. So if we fast forward to Machiavelli and the Prince, you know, there's a way in which I think in political theory texts, it's quite revolutionary. And, and he's so stark in any case, A, and B, he's doing it in the vernacular and not in Latin as these other early histories had been written. So in a lot of ways, it's still, I think, quite revolutionary, but it does have a context that's, I think, a little bit more supple than sometimes, uh, you know, one will have heard about. Right. So in other words, I mean, what he's doing is he's taking 
certain trends that are sort of in seminal form in history writing and abstracting them to a more theoretical construct is that that that's a great way to put it in fact i think you know one of that that's a, that's the perfect way to put it because i think one of the um most recent tendencies in the study of Italian Renaissance history, um, for example, James Hankins, who's a professor of history at Harvard University, is working on this, is that if you really want to look for, let's say, 15th century political thought, you actually have to go not so much to texts that call themselves political treatises, but you have to go instead to texts that are things like histories. And so I think the way you put it is right on the money in the sense that when once you get to Machiavelli's prints, all of a sudden it becomes sort of more axiomatic, right? It's more memorable. It's shorter. You know, he's he, in effect he's distilling things without so much even maybe even knowing he's distilling things. He's just kind of a product of that environment. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, one of the things he distills is certainly this teaching on Fortuna. Mm -hmm. And when I teach my own students, I tell them that Machiavelli stands as a sort of transitional figure, a bookend to the medieval period, with Boethius <laughs> occupying the position at the other end of the Western medieval period. Now, both of these writers' best-known books spend some time dwelling on fortune and the possibility or the impo impossibility of resisting fortune. How does Machiavelli's famous passage on dominating Fortuna play into the rest of his work and his moment? And if you're comfortable saying so, how does he stand? Well, I mean, does he stand as a strong departure from the Boethian tradition, or do you, do, do you see this also as something that is working its way out before Machiavelli gets to it. No, that's really interesting. I mean, you know, Boethius, you know, one of the ways Boethius comes up actually in the 15th century is with this thinker named Lorenzo Valla, who died in 1457. And for, for Valla, Boethius is this bete noir because he feels like Boethius introduced um, basically is the beginning of scholasticism and so on. But, you know, the thing that I recall most about Boethius is this really fascinating idea that, you know, if you were to conceive God as being um, effectively omniscient and omnipresent and having a vision of uh, things such that the past, the present, and the future all appear to God as if in an eternal present. What that means is that in some ways, right, the things that you're doing are scripted. So it might seem to you like you have free will, but it might very well be the fact that, you know, all of these things are kind of out there. Only God can see them in their totality. So only God will really know, but it doesn't mean that there's a kind of path. So Machiavelli, I think you're right that for him, it's it's a real, he agonizes over the question because, you know, he, he can say, you know, what fortune is like. You know, he says fortune is like a river, for example. And, and you know, just as, you know, normally, let's say, you know, times are good, the weather is good, you have this river, what you should be doing is you should be building strong embankments, because when that rainstorm comes, and when that river gets higher, you don't want that flood to come and flood your whole plane. So fortune is like that. Another passage that is uh, really sometimes difficult for modern years is he says, fortune is like a woman, um, and women like strong, impetuous young men. This is what he says. And, you know, so the question is, should you be cautious or should you be impetuous? And he says you should be impetuous. And so there, he, he never really can tell you what fortune is, but he knows, for example, that he's seen people, leaders, let's say, act in exactly the same way, but then have different results. And so he's concerned about this because he feels like, well, how can it be that, you know, you know, two people could do the same thing and then the results are different? And so I think that's why his thoughts on fortune are always so um, 
difficult to tease out because I don't think he really knows what he's saying. You know, he says things like, I want to preserve human free will. So I think we can control about half of things and fortune controls the other half. But it always, it's hard to know. And he often has this theories about human beings too that you have an essential nature. So he'll say, for example, that Pope Julius II, who was this kind of warrior pope, Pope Julius II had an impetuous nature. And at one point, Pope Julius had to uh, gain control of the city of Bologna. And Julius actually, you know, rode out on a horse in front of soldiers that he himself as Pope actually went in and, you know, took control of the city. Machiavelli says this action shocked everybody. It shocked the French. It shocked everybody else so much that Julius was able to pull it off. And he said, you know, had the times, though, required not impetuousness but caution, Julius couldn't have done it because he was of an impetuous nature. He was just that way. So Machiavelli has this idea that, you know, people are a certain way um, and you have to in some ways match your characteristics to the time and that maybe is the way that you can think about if not taming at least dealing with fortune right and, and it's interesting because boethius is far more of an absolutist when it comes to fortune he says that fortuna is the random goddess and therefore the wise man distances himself and his own sense of you know the center of existence as far away from fortuna as possible you know it's the famous fortune's wheel image uh so i mean i that, again, that's why I like teaching those two as a pair, because for Machiavelli, Fortuna, at least in part, is something to be anticipated, and, you know, the good ruler is one who tries to control as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Boethius says you can't control any of it, so just tend to your soul. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. of course, you know, right about the middle of there, you get, you know, King Alfred's Old English translation of Boethius, which, you know, adds a section almost as long as the original Latin text. Mm-hmm. about how a ruler should still attempt to rule well and run a good military. So it, it's fascinating that, stuff. And I, I that is fascinating. In fact, you've just, <laughs> you've just given me my next uh, reading assignment because I didn't know about that King Alfred text. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's great because yeah. it, 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 uh, it omits about 40% of the Latin text. Okay. But overall, it's twice as long as the Latin text. That is so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, I, 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 I'm teaching some old English right now. That's why I've got that on the mind. But back no. to Machiavelli, when your book turns its attention to discourses on Livy, yeah. your opening focuses on one particular episode from the Roman historian's early books, namely the legendary narrative of Appius Claudius and how a daughter and father brought him down. What do Virginia and Virginius have to do with Florence? You know, I spent a lot more, I spent a fair amount of time on this episode because I think it is so starkly different from our world on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's actually not that different from Machiavelli's world. The basic story is that, you know, Livy is narrating the the beginnings of Roman history and, and there's this point where, you know, the Romans feel like they have to have tables of law, you know, they have to have their laws written down. So they select this group of 10 men, they call them the Decemviri. And, you know, their task is to take a year and they can be in absolute control of the city and then their task is to draft tables of law. So they do that. They realize at the end of their term that they need more laws, they need more time. So they take, you know, power again. And at one point, one of them is this gentleman named Appius Claudius, who is, Machiavelli calls him, looking back on it, he says he's a a man who's uh, inquieto e sagace, like sort of a, you know, troubled and, and cunning man. And Appius Claudius develops this 
He's one of the ten, and he develops this um, kind of abominable lust for this beautiful young girl named Virginia, who's the daughter of Virginius, uh, who's, you know, uh, in the Roman military. And by hook and by crook, um, Appius finds ways eventually to um, have Virginia declared his property, in effect. And you know, he goes through all these machinations to do this. Virginius, the father, realizing that this is going to happen, um, goes to the a part of Rome called the Cloacina. This is what Libby tells, he, where there's a butcher. He takes a knife from the butcher and he publicly kills his daughter in front of Appius. And he says, you know, um, only this way can I liberate her from this slavery and I'd rather have her, you know, die than suffer dishonor. And I bring this up because there's a kind of what some scholars have called, not so much about this episode but in general, this idea of sort of hysterical masculinity, this notion that, I mean, after all, if you look back at this episode, she wasn't even necessarily, you know, she, Appius had sort of found ways legally to do this, but it hadn't happened yet. Um, you know, no one really could have known what was going to happen. But Virginia saw his daughter, I think, not so much as a person, but he saw her as, you know, in effect, property linked to him. And what's interesting is that, you know, Machiavelli, when he comes to comment on this episode, he says almost nothing about this, you know, what today would be a truly shocking honor killing. Because after Virginius does this, and Livy's telling him, um, it's not like Virginius suffers. He becomes a leader in a way. And he, you know, he explains what he did to people. They're initially a little surprised, but he explains it. Everybody understands. And this is just a normal part of the world. Now, rhetorically, I think for Livy, this is one of his devices. You know, it also happened earlier on with the rape of Lucretia. There, you know, Women's honor is linked to political change in some ways. And for Livy, what happens after this episode is Rome realizes, okay, we've given these 10 too much power. We have to go back to our old system of just having consuls and go back to, you know, our Republican virtues. And that, of course, is Machiavelli's interest, too. But I spent time on this because I think that, you know, his, you know, his attitudes toward, you know, half of the world, right, women, are, are really very different from ours. And I think in some ways for Machiavelli, much closer to Libby's than to ours, despite the fact that we often see a lot of ourselves in Machiavelli and his, and his modernity. It's this other pre-modern part that I wanted to bring out in recounting that tale. Mm -hmm. And in that pre-modern context, I mean, the discourses, even more than the prince, at least as I read them, spends a good bit of time dealing with how religion works in the context of a state and really takes a fairly modern approach to religion. I mean, you write that, you know, Machiavelli brackets God out of his examination of cities' lives, and yet he remains fascinated with religion. Yeah. What does that distinction mean within Machiavelli's work? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, this is, he, you know, it's, it's a very complicated thing, right? Because on the one hand, he grows up in a Christian society and, you know, he's exposed to the rituals and the, the ways that religion structures your life and your week and your year and his whole life as a youth. On the other hand, you know, he is also heir to this kind of loosely secularist bent that we talked about before, you know, in history writing and so on. When he talks about religion, uh, especially in the discourses, he has a lot of praise for his version of ancient Roman religion, because for him, ancient Roman religion was about ceremony. Um, it was about public rituals, uh, you know, big, extravagant public sacrifices that he says, you know, these are like blood sacrifices of animals, right? And he says these were ferocious events, and they made the men who were participating ferocious, and then those men wanted to go out and, you know, do things that would win them glory, meaning go and win military battles on Rome's behalf and so on. And so he uses that 
view of Roman religion, you know, which is you know present in Livy, but of course it's his own reading of it, and he contrasts it with what he perceives as Christianity, and he says that the problem with Christianity, in his view, is that um, there's two things. One, it's the institutional church as such, which is to say the Roman Catholic Church. And he says what they've done, what the popes have done, and he brings this up in his Florentine histories too, is they've continuously brought other powers into Italy, right? Because Italy is this world of city-states, so the popes don't have enough power, Machiavelli says, to unify the whole peninsula, but they want some power, and they do have enough power to say, you know, ally with the French this time, ally with this city-state that time, so they're always causing trouble. But he goes deeper than that. It's actually a pretty, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a critique. And he says that our religion, meaning Christianity, glorify, if they glorify anything, they glorify the ability to suffer and to be a martyr. And that there's this persistent focus on another world rather than on our own. And what his, his vision and his version of Roman religion is that it was more thisworldly. And that, you know, you wanted to win glory and you wanted to win uh uh, you know, glory among your fellow men. And he says that you know, the Christian religion instead fosters the idea of winning glory in a life that's not the earth that we live on now. So it's a pretty profound critique in a way, um, on the one hand. On the other hand, I, I still persist in thinking that there are certain kinds of idealisms that he probably gleaned from his Christian upbringing, which even though he's trying to write them out of his work, I don't think he can totally escape. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that, that was an interesting part of the book because I had thought at times that you know with with Machiavelli we've got a sort of proto-Nietzschean return to the pre-Christian pagan uh, virility right as the center of things and for for some reason I hadn't thought of it for a while until I read your book and I realized okay you know someone who knows Machiavelli seems to be making this case I mean obviously Nietzsche is a more systematic sort of thinker than Machiavelli is but other than that, I mean, what sorts of distance would you put between them? Or do you really think that Machiavelli is a fairly straightforward predecessor to Nietzsche? I think there are a lot of parallels, actually. I mean, I think the interesting thing about Nietzsche is, you know, we, we tend to divide Nietzsche's career up between his early philological writings, like his classical studies writings that he published in this journal called the Heinisches Museum, and then the birth of tragedy and beyond. But if you really read Livy, I mean, Nietzsche the whole way, he's always interested in these little particular points. And I think Machiavelli is like that too. And I think that interest in these particular points does lead to a very kind of sober examination of power and how power functions in the world. Um, and so you know, Nietzsche's genealogy of morality, for example, I mean, there, you know, he's very explicit, Nietzsche is, right? about saying that, um, you know, people have the ancient world wrong. You know, he would say that if people were talking about the good in the ancient world, they weren't talking about the good in the sense of Plato's form of the good. They were talking about what the good people, meaning the people with power, were doing, right? So it was this very kind of sober view of power. And I do think there are real parallels to be, between the two of them. I mean, you know, obviously, they're separated by a number of different centuries. So, you know, a lot went on between them. But I do think there's this certain... A very close reading that both of them share that then leads to some of these interesting similarities. Okay. All right, well, good, good. Well, one chapter of your book that I enjoyed especially, largely because I've only ever read Machiavelli's political works, mm-hmm. dealt with Machiavelli's comedies. Um, I, I'm, I'm just curious, as far as you know, did anyone ever stage these during his lifetime? And if not, has anyone since tried? And how does knowing a bit about Machiavelli's sex life, which you talk about in this chapter, uh, help us to understand the man and his moment? 
Well, you know, it, it, it's it is interesting. They were staged, yeah. I mean, and and he he rewrote them. I mean, he would, um, you know, uh, he he has this kind of crush he develops on this courtesan named Barbara Salutati. So at one point, you know, one of his comedies called The Mandrake Root, he actually added songs between the acts. She may even have composed some of them. So he's working on them. They are staged. Um, he'd been asked to put one on for a, a Florentine named Falconetti who had been in exile who's coming back. And people still do, you know, occasionally put them on. Um, in fact, there's a group that's coming here to Johns Hopkins that's doing... Um, uh, some Boccaccio, but they they also at other times will do Machiavelli's comedies. Um, they're very similar to ancient Roman comedies. Um, there, you know, there's usually misunderstandings. They're almost like sitcoms. You know, things happen. There's a misunderstanding, misrecognition, um, and so I, I do think that what they show us, though, is they show us the comedies. I think can show us uh, they can they can shed light on other parts of his work, uh, his character in this. A play called The Mandrake Root named Kalimako. In some ways, he could almost be that bold, impetuous young man of the chapter of The Prince on Fortune because Kalimako, you know, he falls in love with this woman and he has to find a way to be with her. And in doing so, you know, he, he's basically this young, impetuous man who trusts to his improvisational instinct. So, you know, when you read in the chapter on Fortune and The Prince that fortune favors the young in some ways, you can almost see that mirrored in this more comedic uh, character. Um, the other thing that fascinates me about them is comedy just changes according to time. And so, you know, I was teaching one of these comedies the other day and, you know, in the academic world anyway, these days, as, as I'm sure you know, there's all this concern about, you know, sexual violence and fraternities and things like that. And, you know, the story of the Mandragua is more or less the story of a date rape. I mean, it's not quite, yeah. but it's kind of a little bit. And so, you know, it, it really does show you that comedy is, I think, always rooted in its time and place. It's very much, I, I would argue, like a vernacular medium in some ways. Well, uh, sure. And I mean, to take that sidetrack for a moment, you know, I yeah. mean, there have been some essays published on the internet recently you know just horrified that you know the movie revenge of the nerds features a bed trick yeah and, yeah. and my first thought was i mean have these people not taken a shakespeare class i mean that's yep that, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that's at least a couple of the comedies yeah i know it's true and i mean I, I think you know as to machiavelli as to the rest of his sex life it's sort of what one interesting facet you know he, you wouldn't know it from most standard accounts. Machiavelli wrote a lot, but you wouldn't know it from most standard accounts. But what he wrote most was letters, really. I mean, he just writes a lot of letters. Mm -hmm. And not all of them are preserved. His grandson was the one who edited them. And his grandson even says, I'm going to only keep in these letters what the grandson called uh, manegius, uh, 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 things about states and matters of importance. He says, state manegi d'importanza. And even still... Machiavelli and his friends often share what can only be characterized as kind of locker room gossip about their, you know, their little affairs and their crushes and things like that. So, you know, it's a way I think he has of the reason I, I put it in there is because it's a portrait. I wanted to give a sense of the man around and, and you know, what his conditions of life were. And then again, you know, the pre-modern character, you know, he, you don't get the sense that he or any of them ever had, let's say, conversations with women as women, if you see what I mean. You know, they had, mm -hmm. it was, it, it, you know, they just don't talk about them in that way. So it's, I felt that that would give a, you know, a more um, rounded portrait of them. Right. And, and, you know, with regards to that rounded portrait, I mean, one emphasis of your book is that Machiavelli is firmly in place 
in his own 15th and 16th century Florence, even though the world after him condemned him as a sort of destroyer of morality. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I mean, the image of Machiavelli as in his place and very much a part of the life of the city runs very counter to the image that's come de- that has come down to us of old Nick, you know, the one who appears at the beginning of Marlowe plays, the one who destroys morality and yeah. corrupts rulers. Am I overplaying this emphasis in your book? And if not, I mean, why do you point your readers at Machiavelli's normalcy rather than his oddity? Well, I mean, I think, you know, in some ways, right, we have the major works that we have of his, we have only because he wasn't doing what he really wanted to do, which was be involved in politics. You know, he, I detail this episode in the book where there's a change of regime at some point and his career as a diplomat and political figure comes to a very abrupt end. He's arrested. He's tortured because, you know, it's he was on a list of possible conspirators. And, no, and your descriptions of that are horrifying, by the way. Congratulations. <laughs> right. I mean, and so, you know, it's only right. It's only because of that episode that he really sits down and starts to write these treatises in earnest. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he doesn't choose to have them print published, right? The prince isn't print published in his lifetime. The discourses are not print published in his lifetime. The Florentine histories are not print published in his lifetime. And those are the things we really think of as his classic works. The Art of War was the only kind of work of political theory that he actually had print published in his lifetime. So this idea of him being part of the 15th and 16th century, I think one thing that emerges is, you know, people's relations to publication and books are just different in some ways. I mean, print publishing had been around, you know, obviously since the 1450s in Germany, it hits Italy in 1462. So there's a tradition Machiavelli knows about printing, but it still is not the first thing he thinks of when he's writing things. What he's really thinking of is he wants to publish his works, but he wants to publish them publishes works in the ways that that word had meaning then, meaning make public to the public who mattered to you. And the public who mattered to Machiavelli were those folks in his epistolary network, all these people he's writing letters to, that could maybe help him get back in the game of politics. And they could help him, you know, get in front of the right cardinal or get in front of the right Medici who's back in Florence or, you know, make that connection with him. And that, in a way, is why he's doing these things and writing these things. So it's right. it's very different. I don't think he could imagine the way we could imagine today, let's say, you know, the steam printing press, right, is a product of the early 19th century. You know, and after that point, if you're an author, you can imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of exactly the same copy, right, going out. I just don't even think that was imaginable in his day because then, you know, the printing press is still relatively new in his day. It's a hand-operated instrument. You know, you could print lots of things, but, you know, you still, it took a person, you know, a compositor, you know, every page, right, the compositor has to put every single letter of every single line backwards, right, in a matrix, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's a big, slow manual process. So that's an interesting thing, too, is he's kind of normal. He's part of this world where it's a very transitional moment, I think, in the history of, you know, the history of reading and writing and, and the way books are considered. Right. Let me ask you this as a follow-up. The uh, histories that you talked about as a sort of predecessors to Machiavelli's ideas, uh, did the church and did the reading public of Europe resist those in the same way they resisted the prince? Or were those so far under the radar that people didn't think to ban them? They didn't think to ban them. I mean, you could, you could 
make a parallel with Machiavelli's own. Let me give you an example. This Leonardo Bruni, who was the Chancellor of Florence, he had also served as a papal secretary. Um, Bruni did. And Bruni's histories of Florence, which are written in Latin, are very admired, so much so, and this is going to sound shocking, I think you'll endorse this for scholars today, as I would too, Bruni actually received a tax break from the city of Florence for writing its, its official history. So it's the only time that scholars got tax breaks for doing their work. <laughs> um, so, you know, they're very admired. Um, and they're not, you know, Machiavelli's prince, it, it's so um, overt in the things he says, you know, a prince has to learn how not to be good. Whereas the histories that precede him, and even his own Florentine history, this larger work he writes, those sorts of aphoristic um, sort of counter moralities really aren't present. You know, they're, you know, they're more narratives of events, but they're narratives of events just from a human perspective. They don't, they're, they're not saying anything negative about, let's say, God or the church or anything like that. They're just kind of leaving it out. They're just giving you narratives of events based on ancient Roman templates of how history should be written. Um, whereas the prince, I think it's true, all of a sudden that starts to seem like a very different animal because it's so short and it's so kind of punchy um, and it's so attention getting in a way once it gets out there. Okay. All right. Well, this is uh, this show is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, so I'm also curious to hear you comment a little bit further. You've already nodded to it. Uh, to a note that you make in the book's final chapter in which you suggest that Machiavelli, though a persistent critic of papal power and not a man of great Christian piety, nonetheless returns a certain idealist vision that he inherits from Christianity. Uh, might old Nick be more of a Christian than our readers might have guessed? You know, he, he has these passages in his work. One comes in the very last chapter of The Prince. Another comes at the very end of his Art of War, where he's looking in a way not so much for a savior in the sense of a Christian savior, but he's looking for a savior for Italy. Right. And, you know, he's got these these, uh, you know, almost ecstatic passages at the end saying, oh, if only some leader would come, some ruler. Right. And I think that in some ways there's a kind of idealism there. Or if you were to take his discourses on Libby, which express more his ideas about republics, it's almost as if there's an ideal of a possible perfect constitution imagined. Right. So I think that, you know, the point I make in the book on that front is just that, you know, this is somebody who grew up, you know, seeing the miracle of the mass every week. You know, who would have seen, you know, some of these beautiful Renaissance altarpieces, right, that we love so well and have had somebody say to him when he was a boy, look, Niccolo, you see that man, that man is going to come back and save us someday. So I think he's very overt about trying to write um, Christianity out of his narratives. But I think that idealism that is part and parcel, right, of the Christian vision that there will be salvation, right, there will be a savior, um, you know, there is a world beyond our world. I think that's still kind of there for him and it's and it's operative, even if sometimes on a kind of subterraneous level for his, for his psychology. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this as a follow-up. I mean, do you see any direct influence from Dante's, uh, you know, prophecy of the Greyhound in the early going of Inferno? Or do you think that that is too much of a stretch? You know, Dante is interesting. I, Machiavelli would have known Dante. I mean, he knows Dante practically by memory, as almost all Italians did. So there's certainly connections possible there. Dante also wrote, you know, a work on monarchy mm-hmm. um, in Latin as opposed to Italian. And, you know, that's a work, too, where, again, it's it's the product of somebody in pre-modern Italy who, you know, Dante was exiled from his city of Florence, right? And so... It's only then, right, only when people are kind of exiled from Italy or when Italy as a geographic entity is under attack that they start to see it as one unified place. 
And so I think in the, in the way the parallels with Dante could certainly be there. And, you know, Machiavelli quotes Dante from memory in certain parts of his letters and things like that. So it's, you know, it's a text all Florentines are proud of. And, uh, you know, by Machiavelli's day, especially really, you know, it's, it's, it's been taught in universities, you know, it's been taught as if it were a kind of classic. Um, so, so it's, it's a very well-known text and I think the parallels could definitely be there. Okay. Well, you make a brief gesture, and again, this is towards the end of the book, uh, towards the influence, direct or indirect, that Machiavelli might have had on the American founders. Uh, what would Machiavelli have recognized when he looked to the 18th century United States of America, and what realities would he not have anticipated? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, the person who's made this case is a scholar named John Pocock, who, as it happened, is a historian here at Johns Hopkins. And he, the book that he published in 1975 was called The Machiavellian Moment. And Pocock's argument, and I think there's some truth to this, is that there's thinking in the very early 15th century among people like Leonardo Bruni about Florence as a republic. Machiavelli picks up on some of this in his discourses on Livy. The discourses on Livy become known to British thinkers like Harrington, whose work then actually is, I mean, demonstrably known by you know, American founders, people like Jefferson and others. So there's a way in which I think, you know, the connections, if you look with a very broad brush, the connections are there in some senses. Um, you know, you asked, right, what would he have recognized when he looked at the 18th century U.S.? I mean, I think, you know, the world of city-states, right? I mean, this is still a small place at that point, you know, and, it, and it's a place where, um, you, know, uh, you know, how to organize militias is important, you know, how to do it, um, how to set up a constitution. So I think there's a lot he would have recognized as being very close to his environment in some ways. Um, as to realities, he would have failed to anticipate, though, that is really interesting. And I, that I just don't know. I mean, I, I get the sense that, you know, the Industrial Revolution that was to come, I mean, that's such a game changer in so many ways, right? Um, you know, the, you know, all these things we take for granted, you know, the possibility of easy mass transit, you know, I mean, even in Machiavelli's day, you know, travelers are rare, you know, I mean, he's one of these rare people who's traveling with his work, his diplomatic work, but, you know, most life is local. And I think for the early U.S., that would have seemed similar, but I think by the time you got to the era of trains, it would have seemed so different, you know, not to mention now, right, where you can just pick up and fly anywhere. And mm -hmm. so. Well, and it's fascinating, too. And I mean, this is something when I've taught the Federalist Papers, mm -hmm. you know, students always balk at the fact that, you know, Hamilton and Madison pretty fluidly, you know, refer to their ambitions as to have a continent spanning empire in North yeah. America. That's and, you know, I, I always have to remind them, you know, this is not the. Uh, this is not the, you know, empire that Mahatma Gandhi resisted, but this is the empire, the Imperium, as the Romans would have imagined it, right? You know, it's something it's great, that... Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's I, exact parallel. I mean, that is exact. That could come... You're right. I mean, that's that's the right way to go with this, is that that is precisely that, you know, I think those sorts of passages, right? Empire, Imperium, you know, that your, your job as a state is to grow. And if you're successful, as the Romans were successful, that's that's a sign of being good. And I think it's true that when you talk to students, that's that's definitely not the first thing that leaps to their mind because they're conditioned to think of universal human rights, whereas I think this narrative of conquest equaling success is something that's very powerful. You know, it's in Libby, it's in Machiavelli, and it's exactly as you say, you know, it, it's present in some of our founders. And that's yeah. why, you know, even to this day, I can't figure out why Thomas Jefferson hated Napoleon so much. 
that's <laughs> but that's that's another conversation for another day, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, I have been steering the conversation up to this point, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want to give you the last word. Uh, before we head for the doors, what do you want our listeners to depart thinking about Machiavelli, Florence, the Renaissance, your book, anything else you want to talk about? Well, thank you. I mean, I think... What strikes me about Machiavelli is that, you know, it's interesting to look at his famous texts because they're still so powerful. They still speak to us today. And it's also interesting to look at his life. And what strikes me about his life is that, you know, no matter what, no matter what the kind of um, tragedies that befell him, and there were a number of them, he never stopped trying to be involved in public service in some ways. You know, and he, that's definitely not the image we have of him, right? We have the image of this cynic and this thinker. But if you really look at his life, his whole life really was a campaign from adulthood on, like from the time he's about 30 years old on, was to find a way to, you know, be in government, to be in politics, to, to you know, take the institutions that were there and help them work. And I think that today, you know, there's been a rise of, there's this evocative Italian word called antipolitica, anti-politics, meaning that, you know, all politics is sorted. You know, whatever your political party, whatever your views, no politics can work. And there's this kind of quietism or retreat from politics that's only been exacerbated by this multimedia kind of world of noise that we all live in when it comes to how we acquire news about politics. And I just think that spirit of service, you know, thinking that, well, maybe the institutions we have, they might be flawed. But we can work on them. We can work on them together and we can make them work. But what it's going to take is, is people participating. So that's probably the thing I would I would leave as the last word is that that's one of those unexpected parts of Machiavelli that's not always maybe foregrounded, but I think it's there. Very good. Well, Chris Chalenza, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. This was a really um, fun and interesting and stimulating conversation. I appreciate it. Well, good. Listeners, thank you for downloading our episode. As you know, Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Zach Schmidt is our intern. Kristen Filipic is our press liaison. And this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Christian Humanist Profiles saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>